You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. We're standing in our own grave. It's been seven years, nine months, and 29 days since you last saw your commanding officer. You remember that day clearly. He rode into your fort amidst a small crowd of fur-clad auxiliaries riding their short, stumpy ponies, slid off his horse, tossed the reins to a groom, and then requisitioned half your men on the spot. It's bad to the south, he said, his one remaining eye roving over your walls and your barracks and your scrawny horses grazing in the yard. Barbarians coming by sea, half the provinces south of Valentia are on fire. Before he left, he shook out handfuls of coins from a sack at his waist and passed them out among your remaining men. Less than half the pay you were owed, but it was all he could spare. I'll come back in the spring with the rest, he said. In the meantime, hold this line. Then he rode out the south gate at dawn with the best of your men. You never saw any of them again. Now it's your watch. You pace the top of the tower, shivering in the cold wind that cuts in through the windows under the eaves. To the north and south, the hills roll away gray as iron. It's quiet, but you can see tall towers of smoke in the distance. Not your job to ride out and subdue. Your orders were to hold this line. You've done your best in the years since to keep ready for your commanding officer's return. You've kept the granaries in good repair, though all of them now stand empty. You've patched the walls on the barracks, though most of those stand empty too. You've kept all the watches, kept the men rising to the bugle call at dawn and pacing your length of wall, kept them polishing their cuirasses and sharpening their weapons, kept them ready to light the signal fire, should it be needed. Of course, it's not easy. Food and supplies stopped coming years ago. You've all had to farm in the rough rocky ground to make ends meet. You've long ago slaughtered the last of your cavalry horses, during a bad freezing winter when it was either that or starve. The rest of the wall is quiet now. You and your men rarely venture out of your fort. When you do, it's not to go far. Nine months ago, you sent a group of them a mile east to repair a turret that had fallen down. Not manned, of course. They haven't been manned in years. 
But what if the commanding officer comes back? You shudder to think what he would say, to see you've let your section of wall rot beneath you. Two years ago, you rode out with your men to visit the next fort over. You had to see for yourself. The trip took miles, and you arrived to find the fort standing empty, its great wooden doors hanging in the wind. Inside, it was quiet as a tomb. You found nothing here but the bodies of two men lying in the courtyard, wounds still evident, their armor rent and rotted. You and your men buried them in a pit in the overgrown atrium of the officer's fine mosaiced villa amidst gleaming marble statues of nymphs and goddesses standing amidst waist-high weeds. It seemed as good a graveyard as any. Now you pace the lookout tower, freezing under the eaves. For the thousandth time, you cast your eyes south. It's been years since any of you rode south, even as far as the Stainegate Road. But four months ago, you all gathered together in the officers' quarters, mosaics going bald from disrepair, the roof leaking from a dozen holes and the private baths long gone cold. You all decided together that it had been long enough. Seven years since you've had any news from the south. Seven years since any supplies came through. Seven years since your last order from a superior officer. Seven years since your men were paid. You all decided together to send a small group of you, no more than ten, south of the wall, for news, for orders, for supplies, for pay. That was four months ago, when the season was still warm. You've seen no sign of them since. You're down to your last handful of men, still holding this line at the end of the world, still following orders. You stand at the window and look to the south, searching the horizon as if it had something new to tell you. It's hard to keep your mind from wandering at times like these, from thinking you're the last seven men anywhere in the world, from believing you'll never see them again. You were born on this wall. Your father manned this fort and his father before him. You've never known anywhere else. If you were to leave here, you'd have no idea where to go. Even so, you don't want to die here. You have a terrible feeling you'll die here. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So that was a cheery, cheery little intro. Oh, Roman Britain, you do break our hearts. The intros have gotten grimmer and grimmer as we go along. I mean, to be fair, the situation at Hadrian's Wall has gotten grimmer and grimmer as we've gone on. The situation is not ideal on Hadrian's Wall right now. That is absolutely true. So in our last episode, we looked at what happened on Hadrian's Wall in the decades and centuries after Hadrian died, how things changed under Antoninus Pius, Commodus, Diocletian, and many others. If you look at the archaeology from that time, Going from the death of Septimius Severus in the early 200s to the beginning of the 300s or so and maybe into the 400s, you might get a sense of a slow, gradual decline. You might even call it peaceful. We think that couldn't be further from the truth, even if there were few large battles up there during these centuries. In fact, at the end of the last episode, we went out on a limb and said that the 300s AD may have in fact been the worst century ever in Roman Britain, and this also applies to Hadrian's Wall. This may be an extreme claim. A lot of people might not agree. But in this episode, we're going to back it up. We're going to tell you why. We're laying out our thesis. We're giving you our supporting facts. That's exactly what's going to happen. It's almost like we learned something at school. Yeah, it's almost like being English majors taught us something. I don't know. <laughs> no! The monk Gildas, writing in the 500s AD, tells a story of violent raids, widespread famine, corruption, social revolt, and unrest that ripped Roman Britain apart during this time. 
Gildas isn't always a reliable narrator. He wrote his book On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain as kind of a religious polemic, not as straight history. But he's what we got. He's what we've got, exactly. However, he was also recording an oral tradition of what happened in Britain that no doubt has more than a little truth in it, and that is, in places, corroborated by other sources. Yeah, I think the thing about Gildas that I like is that he was operating a lot closer to the time period than a lot of other sources that talk about what was happening then. Like, it's so it's so badly documented, you know? And so he was talking to people who, if they hadn't lived through it directly, they might have been still living through conditions like these, or they might have had parents or grandparents who had. So he was talking to people who were closer to the situation than a lot of the other sources that we have. Sure, but he's writing in the 500s and we're talking about the 300s to the 400s. So at best, we might get a grandparent, but the reality is they're at least a generation to two generations removed. So some of this might even be kind of urban legend. And that's really true. And there is a lot of stuff in Gildas that is demonstrably untrue, like who he thinks built Hadrian's Wall. Like he's already dealing in a lot of misinformation there. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. There are reasons to trust him and there are definitely reasons to not trust him. So I feel like we should lay it all out. Yeah. There is very little, by which we mean basically zero, evidence of how any of what we're about to tell you affected the people living at Hadrian's Wall. But it's extremely unlikely that it didn't affect the wall. Like, it's impossible it didn't affect the wall. We're going to tell you about the six biggest problems facing Roman Britain during the 300s AD, its worst century ever, according to us, and how all those problems would have affected the men on the wall and their families. So the first issue we're going to look at during this time is corruption. Corruption was a huge problem in Roman Britain, and it became worse as the social checks and balances put in place by the Roman army and imperial infrastructure broke down. According to the Greek rhetoricist Libanius, Libanius? According to the... (laughs) Libanius! So according to this guy, Libanius, I think it's actually Libanius, but I like Libanius. Libanius. Go with Libanius. We're just, you know, disrespecting the dead here. Anyway, according to this Greek rhetoricist writing in the mid to late 300s, officers in the army would shamelessly exploit their posts, intercepting pay, supplies, and food meant for the troops and leaving the men cold, hungry, and in poverty. This would have absolutely affected the men on Hadrian's Wall. The archaeology tells us that their standard of living decreased dramatically during this time, and it wasn't just because the merchants left. We talked about this in the last episode. It's quite possible that they adopted local armor and weapons, which we talked about in the last episode. We talked about how the standard Roman army gear kind of dwindled up there and in a lot of other places in the Roman army. And people started adopting the same kind of weapons and armor and stuff that local tribes of people would have used. And it's quite possible that they adopted local armor and weapons because standard army gear stopped coming from Rome. And archaeological evidence suggests that by the late 300s, men on the wall were supplementing their diets by subsistence farming probably because food supplies from central command had dwindled or disappeared as well. You know, a lot of that was probably because the supply chain was breaking down, but a lot of it probably also had to do with corruption. Oh, yeah. So the next thing we're going to look at is religious conflict. By the 300s, Christianity had been gaining steam as a religion in the Roman Empire. The first Christian emperor was Constantine in 306 AD. It's not clear when the religion appeared in Britain, but there were probably small churches and Christian communities at Hadrian's Wall by the late 300s, among both the civilian population and in the military. Large buildings at several forts have been interpreted as very early churches. 
There were also pagan temples, inscriptions, and altars dedicated to a number of Roman gods, including Jupiter and everyone's favorite, Mithras! <laughs> well, I mean, everyone's favorite is clearly Dionysus. I would say our favorites are Dionysus, Bendis, Codis. Artagoddess. Artagoddess. Oh, she's up there. Absolutely. I would say, you know, Mithras isn't on my list of absolute favorite. Might be because we can't join it, but it's fine. We can't join it, and it's really hierarchical and basically against everything we stand for. But <laughs> but if it wasn't... But if it wasn't, we'd be so down. I mean, there's drugs. I'm here about the wine and the free love. I'm not really here for the psychotropics. I don't get that Mithras cares that much about free love. Anyway, so there were these altars and temples inside and around the forts, as well as signs of people worshipping non-Roman gods from many other corners of the empire which we talked about last time. Hadrian's Wall was a place where people from all over the empire had come to serve and they brought their worship with them. The religious communities at Hadrian's Wall would have been as diverse as the people there, and this may have given rise to tensions. Throughout the 300s, emperors vacillated between persecuting Christians and pagans. One emperor would preach tolerance and religious freedom, passing laws that encouraged pagans to practice their religions freely. Then the next would come along and introduce the death penalty for all the pagans coaxed out into the open by his predecessor's tolerant laws. I mean, this is some dark stuff. You can see where this is leading to in Europe. Absolutely. During this time, communities, small villages, and even families in Roman Britain were fiercely divided between Christian and pagan traditions. No doubt those living on Hadrian's Wall were just as divided. This really fascinates me, and I want to draw everyone's attention back to our Morgan episode, because we tell that great story, Jenny, I can't remember his name. Probably Connor, yeah. It was Connor, yeah, who had all these geeses, and one was this geese about not being able to go into a house where a fire had been lit externally, i.e. a fire had been lit at an external community bonfire and then brought into the house. And why that's so fascinating is that is the sort of juxtaposition of what's happening here. You've got people who are living side by side with Christians and pagans. Yeah, the fire being lit outside and then being brought back into the house was an explicitly like Sawain, Beltane tradition. It was non-Christian. Absolutely. It was a communal fire. Yeah. So the, the subtext of that story, which Jen picked up on, I didn't pick up on it at all, was that these geeses were demanding that Connor's side with Christians and not pagans in his own community. Which makes sense because the people who were writing it, who actually wrote this story down, were Christians. It was really important for them to make Connor, you know, a virtuous pagan who was siding with the Christians. I'm not 100% sure what Connor's religion was. If he wasn't Christian, which we're not 100% sure whether he was or isn't, it's sort of to make it so that, like, the Christians are more virtuous and these old ways are bad ways, which, again, we don't agree with in any way, shape, or form. But that is the subtext that I was picking up on. That is something going on a thousand years later where the groundwork for it was being laid at this time. Absolutely. So another issue that people were dealing with in Roman Britain at this time was usurpers. All the usurpers. All the usurpers. So many usurpers. Britain was a breeding ground for usurpers for a number of reasons. First, whoever was governor of Britannia controlled a large number of legions, one-tenth the entire might of the Roman army. Second, the island was a good base of operations because it was difficult to stage an invasion of Britain from the mainland. It was protected. Between 260 and 286 AD, a series of rival emperors rose up in Britain and announced themselves the true rulers of all Rome. Generally, they only controlled a limited number of territories, including Britain, maybe Spain, maybe some parts of Gaul and Germania, depending on the person. Eventually, this territory would be brought back 
under Roman control. But that didn't stop the usurpers. A series of them used Britain as a power base, styling themselves, again, the real emperors of Rome. And this would happen periodically every few decades or so, sometimes more frequently, even after the crisis of the third century was nominally over. These men would inevitably pull soldiers from all over Britain, including from off the wall to fight their battles. So many of those stationed at Hadrian's Wall died on battlefields far away, fighting on behalf of usurpers. This was an event that would periodically depopulate the wall. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So next we have persecution and prescriptions. In Roman Britain during the 300s AD, status and power didn't always protect you from a violent end. You were just subject to different kinds of dangers. Adrian Goldsworthy tells us that by the 300s, quote, the culture of senior army officers and civil servants was one of suspicion and fear, as they knew that accusations of disloyalty to the emperor would most likely be met by torture and death for themselves and their families. On more than one occasion, loyal and capable commanders felt that they had no option but to rebel because their very success had made the emperor consider them a threat. The emperor, Constantius II, rose to power in 353 AD. The man he deposed, Magnentius, had been a usurper from Britain, and Constantius sent a guy named Paulus the Chain. Paulus the Chain. (laughs) Just that name. (laughs) (laughs) To root out anyone still loyal to Magnentius. I'm so excited to talk about Paulus the Chain. I've been texting Jen about Paulus the Chain since I discovered him. She has. Sometimes we will just text the most bizarre things we find, like that time that it was two in the morning and I figured out that like the Mithraic religion was all about drinking the emperor's pee. Or when Jenny discovers someone like Paulus the Chain. Paulus the Chain. Oh, he's so exciting. You guys, I think it's funny what excites us in this podcast. (laughs) I'm like, I discovered a new torturer. So Paulus the Chain (laughs) was a kind of inquisitor sniffing out disloyalty at all ranks of society, including every level of the legions. He was even known to go into temples and rifle through the prayers written down and left by supplicants, looking for any that might wish harm on Constantius. That's fascinating because what that tells us is he's going through the ancient Roman temples because that's where they actually wrote down their prayers on like pieces of paper or wood and then put it in the temple. Exactly. He was targeting pagans here is what it looks like. I don't know that he was explicitly targeting pagans, but it looks like some of his practice did. 
Exactly. If he's finding prayer inscriptions, most likely he was going into pagan temples. Absolutely. So Paulus targeted people at all levels, rich and poor, high born and low, often inventing charges to justify imprisoning and subjecting them to horrific torture in order to root out disloyalty. He was given the nickname The Chain because of his habit of dragging his prisoners through the streets in chains and also using chains as a torture implement. So Paulus the Chain became infamous throughout the Roman Empire for his extreme methods, which were a precursor to the Spanish Inquisition. Paulus the Chain was notably a big fan of the rack. And Jenny, I have to stop here because, like, I need to understand what you mean by the rack. I have a certain idea that's very much based in the Spanish Inquisition. I'm sure some of our listeners do as well, but we are a fair bit before the Spanish Inquisition. So what did Paulus the Chain's rack look like? Okay, so Jen asked me to do a deep dive into the rack. (laughs) She's like, people love it. People love torture. I'm like, okay, do they, Jen? Do they really? Well, (laughs) everyone's going to love it. I suspect that you're all a bunch of morbid people who will love this. I suspect the same, and so am I. So I was like, sure, I'll go into the rack. I asked Jenny to do this deep dive because I think it's important to understand what the rack was and why just hearing that word is so visceral for so many people. We do need to explain this to you because Paulus the Chain was known for this. So we're about to talk about torture. If this is not your speed, you might want to skip ahead a couple moments. So the rack is a method of torture where a victim is tied down to a wooden frame or a rack that has a roller at both ends. The ankles and wrists of the victim are tied and fastened to the rollers at either end. And as the victim is being interrogated, the interrogator cranks the rollers very slowly to tighten the ropes or the chains, perhaps, and stretch the victim's body. Ideally, this is done very gradually as the questioning progresses. Look, there's an art to this, okay? You can't just get in there and just crank away willy-nilly. You have to build up the tension appropriately. Eventually, causing agonizing pain as the joints of the victim's knees, hips, elbows, and shoulders are stretched past bearing. And towards the end of the process, you hear loud popping sounds as the victim's joints are dislocated and cartilage, ligaments, or bones are snapped. This could cripple the victim for life. Many people who had been tortured on the rack had to be carried to their executions. You know, this reminds me in Greek mythology, there's that myth about the the serial killer's bed, where if you were too small, he would stretch you out so that you could fit into his bed. And if you were too tall, he would make you smaller. I believe that that would be Procrustes. Our good pal. It is Procrustes, our good pal. So the rack is in mythology. It's early in ancient mythology. Yes. Hello, Procrustes, our good friend. (laughs) (laughs) Any chance I get to say Procrustes, the serial killer. (laughs) That's right. That's in an ancient Greek myth. Liv Albert talks about it in her Theseus series in Let's Talk About Myths, Baby. Yeah. So let's get back into the history of the rack. The rack is infamous for being a medieval torture device used during the Spanish Inquisition. A lot of torture devices that we associated with the medieval era actually have their roots in the ancient world. And the rack is definitely one of them. And the examples we have here are from Western culture. That's not saying that it it doesn't exist in Eastern culture, but for the purpose of this episode, and because we're talking about ancient Rome and ancient Greece, we're giving you Western examples. Yeah, I didn't find a lot about it in Eastern culture. That That doesn't mean it's not back there. So in 356 BC, the rack was used to gain a confession from someone suspected of burning down the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Apparently, Alexander the Great had some people tortured on the rack in 328 BC for being involved in an assassination plot. The rack was also used in ancient Rome. 
Tacitus tells us a gruesome story of how in 65 AD, Nero had a freedwoman named Epicurus tortured on the rack to get information about an assassination plot she was supposedly involved with. The first day, she was racked so severely that all her limbs were dislocated. The second day, they wanted to rack her again and had to carry her back in a chair because she couldn't walk on her own. So according to Tacitus, Epicurus took off her breast binding, which was basically her bra, and managed to attach it to the canopy of the chair. So this was a fancy chair they were using. Maybe it was like a litter? I don't know. In sort of a noose. As her torturers carried her, she got this thing around her neck and managed to thrust herself forward, putting the whole weight of her body behind it, strangling herself before she could be tortured further. So that's how much she wanted to avoid more racking. Must have been fucking horrible. Just horrible. So yeah, that is a little about the ancient history of the rack. I didn't find a lot of detail about how different the rack was to um, the rack in medieval times, Jen. There were other things that were kind of precursors to the rack, but they didn't seem very rack-like, so I didn't include them. There were some things that it's like, well, this was sort of an ancient Roman rack, but it really was more of like a, you know, one of those horrible donkey things. Oh, I know what you mean. Those bulls and stuff. I know what you mean. Exactly. I'm just like, that's not really a rack, though. So I just didn't include it. (laughs) So Paulus the Chain was apparently using this and other torture devices very freely on basically whoever he felt like in Roman Britain. Things got so bad that the uh, senior official in Britain, I think this might have been the governor, I'm not sure, a mild-mannered guy named Martinus, who was super loyal to the emperor and totally wouldn't hurt a fly, attacked Paulus with a sword. But he was bad at sword fighting, though, and failed miserably at that. And later, he was caught up in the Inquisition himself and forced to take his own life. There's no doubt that the highest level military leaders in charge of Hadrian's Wall would have been just as exposed to the risk from Paulus the Chain as anyone else. And that the tension, suspicion, paranoia, and fear would have permeated all levels of the military at the Wall as they would have anywhere else. Because Paulus the Chain wasn't just doing this to the senior officials, he was doing it to anyone he felt like, really. Yeah, he was a law unto himself. He absolutely was. Paulus did come to a bad end, however. I'm very happy to hear that, Jenny. Aren't you glad I put this in? I'm so glad. I love it when horrible people get their comeuppance. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, Constantius II died and a new emperor, Julian the Apostate, came to power. Julian did not like Paulus the Chain or appreciate his talents. He did not appreciate... Paulus the Chain's unique skill set at all. He wasn't a fan of torturing his own people? What? Shocker. He didn't believe that confessions gained under torture might be, you know, not admissible? What? I wouldn't go that far. I mean, this is ancient Rome, but he just didn't like Paulus the Chain's particular methods. (laughs) Fair point, it is ancient Rome. So, Julian the Apostate had Paulus arrested and burned alive sometime in 361 or 362 AD. Also hearkening forward to the Inquisition there. So the fifth thing we want to talk about here that made the 300s AD so awful was climate change. At the beginning of Roman Britain, the weather was generally decent for growing crops, according to Tacitus, although the heavy rain and damp soil made the crops ripen more slowly than they would have on the continent. That's according to Tacitus. However, Roman occupation put a strain on the island's resources. Approximately 100,000 to 250,000 native Celtic Britons were killed in the violence of Roman conquest, like right at the beginning. But after that, the population grew. I've seen estimates of between 2 and 3.5 million people living in Roman Britain over a 300-year period, and I'm not sure how many of those were Celtic Britons versus Romano-British people and people from other places in the empire. 
According to Michael Jones in The End of Roman Britain, it would have taken approximately 50 to 60,000 acres of land to produce enough crops to feed the immense garrison of about 50,000 soldiers stationed throughout the island at the beginning of occupation. And that's not counting all the other demands the Romans would have had for wood, iron, leather, stone, and other natural resources. The Romans would have been using Roman Britain as a source of those resources to be shipped to other points in the empire. This would have put an immense strain on the native Celtic population. It's not that well documented, but the assumption is that the native Celts would have had to expand cultivation and grazing to support the increasingly urbanized and militarized centers of Roman Britain, overusing and depleting the land. To make things worse, the temperature was changing. Archaeologists believe that the weather got colder and wetter toward the end of the late 300s and into the 400s, with rainfall increasing by as much as 10%. That much rain on overgrazed, deforested land would have leached nutrients out of the soil and caused significant erosion of arable land. Not to mention, the average annual temperature dropped during the century by as much as 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit. This would have reduced the growing season for grain and hay, making it more difficult to support animals and people alike. Up on Hadrian's Wall, the picture for agriculture would have been even more dire than it was further south. This land was already less arable than it was in southern areas of Britain, but now it was colder, wetter, and less fertile than ever, making it even more difficult for soldiers and their cavalry to survive, just when the supplies from Rome stopped coming. <laughs> The final thing I want to talk about is raiders. Pirates, Jen. Ooh. There are a lot of stories of naughty red-headed pirate raiders coming from the sea in the 300s AD to attack Romano-British provinces. And blonde pirates and dark-haired pirates. All the pirates. So many different colors of hair. So much of that raiding involved Scots and Picts from the north, which would have experienced the brunt of climate change. Michael Jones suggests that these raids were born of desperation. As farmable land disappeared in the Scottish Highlands, people had to go south and take what they could find or starve. At some point, just after the death of Constantine I in 337 AD, Constantine's brother, Constans, who would later become emperor, traveled to Britannia. We're not sure exactly what he saw, but it must not have been good because he felt it necessary to bolster the troop numbers there and establish a new military role, commander of the Saxon shore. It's a pretty great title. It is a pretty great title. I'm not going to lie. Look great on a business card. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> so the job of commander of the Saxon shore was to, I love how we both decide we want the title before we know what the job is. <laughs> right. <laughs> we just want to be called that. Let's talk about what the job actually entailed. So the job of the commander of the Saxon shore was to watch and protect vulnerable coasts along the east and south, including the English Channel from raiders. A series of forts was built along the vulnerable coastlines for the commander to control. Again, the historical record about raiding, or ginger pirates, around this time is extremely spotty, and the archaeological record is thin on the ground as well. But the fact that Constance felt it necessary to visit Britannia personally and put these drastic measures in place suggests that the situation was not ideal. I mean, that is the tagline for all of Roman Britain. Things were pretty good at Vindolanda right at the beginning. I don't know. If you were Roman, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Not if you weren't. 
You can read between the lines, seaborne maraudering raiders, ravaging coastal communities, pillaging and burning and killing. And here's the thing about this is that some archaeologists contest that there was this much raiding because there's not a lot of evidence for it. People say, well, you know, we'd find a lot more mass graves of Romano-British people in the South if that was true. It's really tough to know what was going on. It's an incomplete picture, but this is one theory of what could have happened. It's the theory that I personally favor. And like I said, I'm not a professional historian or archaeologist. So all of this is to paint a picture of the corruption, instability, suspicion, paranoia, and outright fear that gripped all levels of Roman Britain in the 300s AD. Regardless of whether you were a civilian, a soldier, an officer, a governor, a merchant, whatever, the things you had to worry about on a daily basis included persecution for your religion, torture on the rack, courtesy of Paulus the Chain, Pillage and death, courtesy of Germanic and Scottish and Pictish raiders. Freezing and starving because your superior officer sold off your supplies and pocketed the profit. I mean, I could go on and on. We can extrapolate a picture of conditions at Hadrian's Wall. The soldiers were freezing. They were starving. Their gear was falling apart. Their commanding officers kept ripping them off. They didn't trust the elites. They didn't trust each other. And they hadn't been paid in years. And that's why, in 367 AD, they threw open the gates for warlike Picts, Atticadae, and Caledonians, and soon the northern provinces were engulfed in flames. At the same time, other tribes, including Scotti from the north and Germanic Saxons, came from the sea, making landfall on the southeastern and midwestern coasts and torching and pillaging their way inland, overwhelming all the Roman settlements, forts, and outposts they encountered. It was too much of a coincidence not to be a coordinated attack. This event was later called the Great Conspiracy. Soon, entire swaths of Western and Northern Britain have been devastated. The Romano-British populace murdered and dragged away in chains over the still warm corpses of their families. Loyal army garrisons huddled behind city walls, terrified to come out. Many high-ranking soldiers were killed in the fighting, including the commander of the Saxon shore and the commander in charge of Hadrian's Wall. It was a devastating multi-front attack that had to have been coordinated. Ancient and modern historians alike blame the Ariani. The Ariani were a specialized unit active in Roman Britain. They're kind of like the Batavi, which we talk about in one of our Patreon episodes. So the Batavi, they were a specific Germanic tribe. They had this special treaty with Rome, and they played a very specialized role in the Roman military and in the emperor's household. They were aquatic German dressage warriors. And they were integral in the conquest of Roman Britain and eventually Wales and Anglesey. Yeah, and their story goes even deeper than that. And we talk about it in this Patreon episode, which you really should listen to if you happen to be a member of our Patreon or you've got five bucks a month. I don't know. So this group of people, the Ariani, it's not 100% clear who they were, but I've seen some historians suggest that they were a specialized tribal unit like the Batavi. Instead of being aquatic Germanic dressage warriors, they were spies. They dealt in intelligence, not being aquatic. And dressage. <laughs> dressage. So their name means people of the sheepfolds, and this may have been a reference to where they were from, the paramilitary zone that existed between Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall. This may have been their tribal homeland. Many of the homesteads found in this area around this time were indeed sheepfolds. The Ariani's job was to integrate themselves among tribal communities, pick up military intelligence, and report it back to the Roman army. But Ammianus Marcellinus, a Roman historian who lived around this time and had served as a soldier in the Roman army, tells us that by now, the Ariani were on the take. 
So, according to him, the Ariani took bribes from local tribes to betray their Roman contacts, reporting false intelligence and hiding the activities of the tribes. So the coordinated attacks took the Romans completely by surprise. The emperor at this point was Valentinian I. Like Julian before him, he was down in Gaul, pinned down by the Alamanni. He sent two other commanders to deal with things in his stead. Both failed to subdue the enemy, sending increasingly panicked messages that a serious military response was needed. Finally, in 368 AD, Valentinian sent Flavius Theodosius, father of Theodosius I, who would eventually be emperor. Theodosius made his base at Londinium and took stock of the situation. He quickly found that it was not ideal. The situation is not ideal currently in Roman Britain. The legions in Britain were out of commission. They'd been decimated in battle. Some flat out refused to come out of their cities. Others had deserted and were currently wandering the countryside, wreaking havoc, along with the raiders. Everyone's pay had stopped coming. Here's how Ammianus Marcellinus describes what happened next. Quote, Dividing his army into several detachments, Flavius Theodosius attacked the predatory and straggling bands of the enemy who were loaded with the weight of their plunder, and having speedily routed them while driving prisoners in chains and cattle before them, he deprived them of their booty which they had carried off from these miserable tributaries of Rome. Booty. I love the word booty. It's just a fun word to say. We gotta take our small joys as they come to us here in Roman Britain. (laughs) Small joys. Theodosius restored most of the stolen booty to its original owners, except for a small payout that he saved for his own soldiers, because he knew where his bread was buttered. According to him. Exactly. Then Theodosius published edicts promising the military deserters currently wandering the countryside and wreaking havoc immunity if they would re-enlist. This brought in a stream of new forces that he used to replenish abandoned forts. And I think this is really important to note because up until now, the Roman military had extremely severe punishments for anyone who deserted, I think up to the death penalty. Yeah. So this is like a, we forgive you, just come back, come back and do your work. Yeah, it's a real huge break with tradition. And I feel like that gives you a sense of the scope of the problem and the number of men who had deserted. Because you can't kill everybody for deserting if the whole army deserted. Exactly. And you can't reform your army if you don't have soldiers. Exactly. It took Theodosius a few more months to drive off the marauding tribes, execute the ringleaders of the rebellion, retake Hadrian's Wall, appoint new military and civilian leadership, and disband the Ariani. The Ariani had been very, very naughty. So naughty. But this did not instill any sense of peace in Roman Britain. In fact, within about 40 years, Rome would lose control of the region entirely. So less than 20 years after the Great Conspiracy in 383 AD, Another usurper arose in Britain, Magnus Maximus. Great name. They all have names like that towards the end of the empire. It's like Magentius and Maximus, and they sound like X-Men, and it's pretty crazy. So according to the monk Gildas, writing about 200 years after the fact, he raised a mighty army, every single fighting man in Britain, not to mention all the governors, administrators, and the flower of the youth, and he hauled them off to die on the battlefields of Gaul and Pannonia. With the Roman garrisons gone, Roman Britain was there for the taking. Pirate Picts and Scots from northernmost Caledonia and Saxons from Gaul descended on undefended Britannia like wolves on a rotting carcass. There had been seaborne raiding for generations here as Rome's power receded, but now that raiding intensified. It got so bad that in 396 or 398 AD, the general Stilicho sent troops up to northern Britain to deal with the Picts. 
But soon, Stilicho had to pull his troops back to deal with Alaric of the Visigoths. Roman soldiers would never return to Britain again in large numbers. This is a time period we talk about in one of our early episodes called Stuff Alaric Said. Pretty cool episode. One of my faves. Me too. The Romano-British civilians were defenseless. Archaeology shows us that by the 400s AD, most, if not all, Romano-British towns had built defensive walls for protection. According to the historian Zosimus, a delegation of Roman citizens from Britain visited the Emperor Honorius in 410 AD to beg him to re-garrison their provinces. But Honorius was currently hiding out in the swamps of Ravenna, huddling in terror under a blanket fort while Alaric of the Visigoths barreled down the length of Italy, intent on sacking Rome. He couldn't help anyone. He couldn't even help himself. He sent the delegation away, telling them to look to their own defenses. All throughout England and Wales, archaeologists have dug up caches of Roman coins, jewelry, and other valuables dating from around this time. There were no banks as we know them today. If you wanted to flee quickly, you might not be able to take your savings account with you. All across Britain, Romano-British families that still had anything of value buried their treasures hastily and fled the violence, planning to return someday when everything died down. Few, if any, of them ever returned. The ancient sources suggest that later usurpers, Magnus Maximus, and then a final one, Constantine III, stripped all Roman soldiers everywhere from the island by 398 AD, including at Hadrian's Wall. You might get the sense that the wall was completely deserted by then, but it wasn't. Not completely. There were still men up there. Not a lot of men, but they were there. We don't know a lot about what their lives were like by this point, but we do know one thing for sure. The pay had stopped coming. It had stopped coming years ago. The latest Roman coin ever found on Hadrian's Wall dates to 408 AD. There's no doubt these men were hungry. In years past, the great supply chain infrastructure of the Roman Empire had ensured they all had enough food, and there was plenty to buy at the Viki markets to supplement regular military rations, including oysters, meat, fish, fruit, eggs, vegetables, and better wine than you got in the army. But now, all that had dried up. The Roman Empire was not sending pay, and it was not sending food. Archaeology suggests that soldiers stationed on the wall at this late point in the empire were subsistence farming during this time, and this would have been a difficult living. The soil was rocky and difficult to farm, and the growing months short this far north. Poverty-stricken and ill-equipped, they would have had to turn to the land to survive. Archaeology suggests that for years, after currency and troops stopped flowing into Britain, after the infrastructure decayed throughout the island and Roman control receded like a tide, pockets of Roman garrisons stayed on in remote corners of Britain and other parts of the empire. Hadrian's Wall was one of these pockets. At South Shields, the skeletons of two men were discovered, dating from the early 400s, who appeared to have died of violent death. Weathering evidence on the bones suggests that they had lain exposed for some time before someone buried them in a pit in the courtyard of the fine officer's house that had been built there in the 300s. You remember that house? We talked about it in the last episode. I do. It was a beautiful house. Stunningly beautiful house, and it was an example of how, even as the living conditions at the wall were deteriorating, high-ranking officers were still trying to hold on to those luxuries and trappings of status. I think that this would have been only maybe a century after the house was built, maybe less. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. So, 
At Birdswald, a granary was rebuilt in the early 400s, repurposed into a long timber hall that probably resembled a Germanic chieftain's longhouse straight out of Beowulf. Clearly, some chieftain had taken over and built his own stronghold, or her own stronghold, within the fort walls. Hey, you never know. It was almost definitely a he, but you know. There's a biography of a saint, Saint Severinus who was born in 410 AD, the year Alaric sacked Rome and Honorius sent the delegation from Britain back empty-handed. St. Severinus was born either in Italy or Africa. It's not that clear. But we do know that he was active mainly along the Danube in Germania. So he wasn't in Britain, but a lot of the things that he does in his life resemble things that I think would have happened in Roman Britain as well. So I think it's applicable. Severinus was very much a man of his time. And when you read about him, you catch a glimpse of what life must have been like in a lot of these isolated provinces when the power of Rome receded. In between praying and working miracles and doing saintly things, Severinus could constantly be seen trying to maintain a fractious peace between an increasingly vulnerable Roman population and local tribes. He negotiated for hostages, convinced raiders not to attack, and mediated conflicts between Roman towns and tribal settlements. And at one point, his biographer tells us about a Roman garrison who had remained at their post at an isolated border town in Germania, even though the rest of the army had long since pulled out. For years, they kept the watches, did the patrols, cleaned and maintained their equipment, and waited for orders and pay. Finally, after no word from their superiors, they sent a group to Italy to bring back everyone's salary. They were met on the way by a group of raiders and slain to the last man. The way that the people at the fort found out about it, according to the story of St. Severinus, is that the bodies of the men floated down the river past this fort, and these guys saw what happened to their companions that they'd sent out on this mission. Can you imagine the horror of that? They literally sent these people out in good faith. They've been keeping watch. They've been holding the wall. They've been holding the fort. And all of a sudden, their answer to everything, the bodies of their men-at-arms, their compatriots, floating down the river towards them, slain, brutalized. Yeah, it's like nowhere is safe. Like you're in this one pocket of maybe defensible safety and this world is closing around you that is not friendly to you for maybe good reasons. You can imagine these men at the wall were like, well, we're going to die here because if we try and leave, like we're going to be killed. So this is pretty much where we're standing in our own grave. Yeah. These little dramas are not really well recorded at all. I mean, we just have this one, but they must have been playing out at border areas all along the empire as the Roman Empire died, leaving these people in these isolated communities like really isolated. Yeah. This story could easily have been about the men on Hadrian's Wall. The last days on the wall would have been lonely ones. Imagine small pockets of Roman units hanging on poverty-stricken and freezing in the harsh weather, warding off starvation with subsistence farming, still walking their regular patrols, and watching the horizon, waiting for pay, supplies, a relief force, orders, news that would never come. Eventually, probably sometime in the 5th or 6th century, Hadrian's Wall was deserted. Over the next few centuries, Saxons, Angles, and other Germanic tribes filled the power vacuum left by Rome, and Christianity came once again to the island. People used Hadrian's Wall as a standing quarry. They mined it freely for stone to build churches and cathedrals. In 1752, the English general Wade demolished large sections of the wall right down to the foundations and built a military road on top of it to connect the eastern and western coastlines of northern Britain. That road still exists today. It's called the B6318. 
And you can drive down it where the wall once stood, pavement running over ancient foundations, the ditch to the north, and the vallum to the south. Today, only 10% of the original wall is still visible. Over time, people forgot who built the wall and what it was for. Just 400 years or so after it was built, Gilda says the Britons built it. The venerable Bede tells us Septimius Severus did. It took us about 1,700 years to remember the wall was Hadrian's. We know more about the wall now than we did before, but the work of rebuilding its story, stone by stone, is far from finished. As cities rise and fall, as seasons change and borders shift and the world destroys itself and rises anew, Hadrian's wall keeps its silence and holds fast to its secrets. So that's it for this week on that cheery note. We keep ending (laughs) on these super cheery notes, Jen. We do. Join us in two weeks. In the meantime, come and visit us on social. We're at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And consider joining our Patreon. Starting at just $2 a month, you can support the podcast and get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive extra episodes for Patreon subscribers where we dive into, you know, rabbit holes that we didn't get to cover in the longer episodes. It's really fun, and um, we really hope we see you there. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in two weeks. Mm -hmm.